Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Dead Cat. It's me, Tom here, joined by Eric, and we have as our special guest Jacob Silverman, journalist uh, of many, many topics within tech, although has been spending a lot of his time in the past couple years. How long has your, your crypto fascination lasted, Jacob? Uh, let's see. It really started at the very end of 2020. So yeah, so about oh, wow. a year, a year and a half, maybe. Yeah, okay, I'm, okay. I'm relatively new as far as sort of the scene goes. Right. But outspoken as a crypto critic and yeah, um, I've kind of decided avowed to, no coiner. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take the gloves off a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, this is going to be a crypto episode to all those who have been paying attention to the brutal and disturbingly bad crypto markets uh, that have crashed, not only in tandem with the equity markets, but far, far worse. Bitcoin's down 37% year to date. Uh, Luna obviously collapsed. What's Ethereum? I don't know. I'm just trying to... But yeah, every, everything's down. Everything's down, down in a big way. And Jacob is is obviously great to talk to about this because, you know, obviously he's he's been into it and writing about it over the last year or so. But also you are working on an upcoming book with uh, Ben McKenzie. Uh, yeah, that Ben McKenzie, Ryan Atwood of OC fame, who is also probably the most prominent crypto critic out there these days. How did you guys sync up? What's the backstory there? He, uh, it was actually pretty... Uh, Pretty basic meat cute, I guess. Uh, he liked something I wrote for the New Republic about Bitcoin basically being a scam. Mm-hmm. And he DM'd me. And then uh, we both live in Brooklyn. So we went and had beers and burgers and talked about crypto. And he he had fallen down the rabbit hole, too, at that point of the sort of the critics rabbit hole. Like, I fully admit, uh, much to the sh- chagrin of people in my life, that I am obsessed. But, you know, I'm obsessed from this angle of of kind of fraud and and the absurdity of it and the characters involved and how could this all be happening so much out in the open. Right. Um, so Ben kind of, uh, while I had been writing a bit about crypto intermittently, uh, it wasn't totally my beat, but Ben had some time on his hands because Hollywood was basically shut down during the pandemic. And uh, that's how he first fell down the rabbit hole and then wrote me in. Right. Got it. And I guess we should lay out at the outset here because we've talked about crypto on the show before. We probably run the gamut. <laughs> Uh, I mean, Eric, you're you're probably going to be on like the mo- the more defensive side, I imagine. Well, I, I was going to point out the the convenient thing about starting to cover crypto in 2020 is you have not had to apologize for past cycles where everybody took a victory lap and said this crypto thing is like a scam, and then it comes roaring back better than ever, and then you're sort of like, well. It's a really, it's a better scam than right. I realized. And so <laughs> Jacob has had, I, Jacob has had so little time having fun m- being My poor. position has always just been people have made so much money on it. Like it's real in that sense. I sort of wanted to throw out the question, like if you pull off a Bernie Madoff and never go to jail, isn't that a success? You know what I mean? It's like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, honestly, I think that's the attitude in some ways for people within the industry. I mean, you hear a lot of talk about Ponzi schemes and maybe about that sort of Ponzi economics not being that bad necessarily. I argue that there's been almost a rehabilitation of the Ponzi scheme. So, I mean, just to to, to take Madoff as an example, he was one of the most successful uh, investors on Wall Street for years. So in a sense, he succeeded for a long time. And And one thing you learn is that sometimes it's not necessarily the 
the contradictions of a Ponzi scheme or law enforcement that ends the Ponzi scheme or the scam. It can be outside forces like uh, like the recession or often not being when when sort of the bill comes due, a recession hits, say your customers want to want to cash out. Suddenly you can't pay them all. That's, I think, a common way some of these scams fail. But even just to bring it back to this week, uh, the whole Terra and Luna thing, I mean, a lot of people thought that that was a Ponzi scheme. Even supporters of it thought it was a Ponzi scheme. But there was this, <laughs> there was this sense that it could just be a Ponzi until it, maybe it was somehow legitimized, whether it was the, the $10 billion plus worth of Bitcoin backing that Do Kwan was trying to build up. I mean, he basically said that that was the defensive mechanism to keep this whole thing going. Right. Uh, well, he, there was that interview with Sam Bankman-Fried, right, where right. he seemed to sort of admit a Ponzi-ish level of, uh, to some of these projects. And then you see the crypto people, you know, this world so much better than I do, but like they talk about like degen boxes all the time, or there's just this idea that it's like, yeah, it's like a magic box that produces money. That's like probably broken, but like, yeah, I'm going to make money off the box while, while it's working. Yeah, and that seems to be the sort of the latest term or framing for some of these DeFi pools and protocols and and stuff like that. I mean, what the it would be it's pretty complicated to describe uh, what just happened with Terra and, and Luna. I don't, I'm not sure if I even fully understand it really, but you know, but basically it was a way of creating a stable coin, a, a coin that that has a value pegged at a dollar, of which there are a number now of sort of in varying trustworthiness. But that's how DeFi runs these days is on stable coins and you stick them, you, you stake them or you stick them in the magic box. Uh, this is the, the simplified version. And then you get insane interest rates. So th- in the, the Terra Luna ecosystem, uh, if you put your, st- you were, the staking pool was through uh, something called Anchor. And there you were getting like, you know, I actually don't know what the Anchor rates were recently, but, you know, these are double digit rates and some of them are promising 70%, not necessarily an Anchor, but some of these other DeFi. Yeah, that was like 19% at one point. Yeah, yeah. they certainly fluctuate, but like, you know, you're not going to get more than single digits from a regular bank. Um, So obviously they're promising these improbable returns. And I think it's gotten to the point where even someone like SBF has to admit, like Sam hey, Bankman yeah. Free. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's that, you know those of us in the know. Yeah, yeah. well, we both we both pretend this podcast is super insidery, but then uh, try to bring people along into yeah, constant balancing. Please act. steer me away from jargon or, or <laughs> tell me to explain stuff. Well, the but, funny thing here is we we've launched so far into this immediately. We didn't even really define to a degree how a stablecoin works, and sure. I mean to me that has probably been the biggest story of the last couple of days is the collapse of Luna and Terra and. You sort of say that you know it's pegged to the dollar, but can you explain just mechanically how that's supposed to work and why, you know, sure. for whatever reason, the structure that was put in place to ensure stability clearly just collapsed? Yeah. So th- there are a number of stablecoins in the crypto economy. Uh, they're actually, if you look at the top ten coins by market cap, several of them are, are stablecoins because they've become very useful. So. The most there's about 150 billion dollars worth of stable coins out there. Uh, these are all ones we're t- at least in this case we're talking about ones that are pegged to the dollar. They're ones that are pegged to other currencies, but the most popular ones are pegged to the dollar. So Tether is the most popular one. Also, 
sort of the most um tether's the one if that goes down some people really do think the economy will like oh yeah yeah Yeah. and tether is considered disreputable in a number of ways there are good articles out there in in bloomberg i've written a couple pieces that sort of sort of explainer type pieces um but there's been some good investigatory pieces definitely other shoes could drop you know worth paying attention to the stable coin thing because the lunas thing isn't some oddity they're bigger Stable right. coins that are and still And when you say peg on. to the dollar, by the way, that essentially means that the value of a single coin should not fall below the value right. of the U.S. dollar. So with most of these, like the biggest ones are Tether and USDC, what, what the idea is that when you, you can buy them on exchanges from the exchange or, or from perhaps other traders, but you know when an institution or a big client goes to Tether or USDC, the idea is I give you $100 million dollars you give me a hundred million tethers, you know, one to one, and the idea is also supposed to be that tether has one to one backing in the bank. So in case there's a bank run or people want to redeem their tethers, they have that cash in the bank, and there are there are more than eighty three billion dollars worth of tether in circulation. Now the widely, it's not even really controversial at this point. I mean, it's been discovered through some. Um, government investigations is that Tether is not one-to-one backed. And they've also changed their, uh, essentially their terms of service over the years to kind of all, first they said they're one-to-one backed by dollars, and then it was sort of dollars and dollars equivalents. Now it's, it seems to be anything goes. There's also a wide belief that some of these Which essentially means that the the claim that they had that there were banks willing to redeem your 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 coin for a similar amount in dollars they just didn't have those contracts or the banks just weren't willing to do that yeah well tether has had a lot of problems with banking um you know some of these some of these other firms like usdc have had more successful bank relationships i mean people in crypto will tell you well this is a problem of the federal government of the industry making it hard for crypto to bank but tether has um Basically, like a lot of crypto companies moved offshore, most of their banking, as far as I know, is is done through a bank called Deltec in the Bahamas. So there's there's a belief that this bank Deltec holds most of Tether's money, but as as you're getting at, it's not 83 billion dollars. It's far less. Um, we know that Tether holds a lot of commercial paper, which is a type of sort of short term uh, corporate debt, which is what scares the shit out of everyone because if they yeah. have to dump all that, all of a sudden it could mess with the economy. Exactly, and the paper is believed to be a very low grade, sort of you know like C grade debt or whatever the equivalent might be. And also, from what I've been told, a lot of it probably is of Chinese companies and right. There was China. all this paranoia that like the yeah. Chinese like. Like, you know, all those empty apartments or whatever in China where, like, Tether was sort of behind uh, some of the crazy stuff going on there. And, and, it, and even if Tether isn't deeply connected to, like, Evergrande or one of those huge Chinese developers, they still have – we know they have some Chinese debt. So, like, the Chinese property market and economy in general have been struggling in the last six-plus months. So, I mean, that could be one shoe to fall if or one catalyst if this stuff all does fall apart again but so the reason why stable coins are useful basically is that um they're easy to take between exchanges a lot every cryptocurrency practically is priced in terms of of uh, of uh, stable coins so there's like a, a usdt which is tether price um and so it's really easy to make these transactions and to shift them between exchanges it can be harder to cash out it seems because if you're um, doing everything in crypto you're not hitting dollars which has right. all sorts of regulatory right you don't touch banks challenges. as much also right. as ex- exactly so you don't touch the mainstream banking system you can keep it on the exchanges or even off the exchanges um and also for defi uh 
it's basically based on stable coins and, and basically you, you, you stake your tokens, you give them to some project, they stick them in the magic black box, and then supposedly an incredible interest rate comes out. But you might not be able to collect on that for a certain period of time. Which is why a stable coin collapsing is so tragic for the holders because its position is like this ultimate secure thing. It's it's like dollars with an interest rate. And then all of a sudden you lose all your what principal basically. And so it's, it's right. like and, devastating. And also stable coins, you know, uh, uh, as per the name, have been advertised as stable, as a refuge in the... Everyone knows the crypto markets are volatile. I mean, even crypt- people in crypto may know that they're not trustworthy and that there's a lot of scamming going on. But, you know, stable coins have been widely um, touted as the safe place for your money. I mean, USDC may be the safest one at this point, but um, people have been putting a lot of their crypto, converting it into Tether into USDC right. and also you know until recently into into Terra and Luna. Yeah, it's like it's like the T note I guess of of the varying <laughs> various crypto coins. So what would you say is the precipitating event that has caused the entire crypto sector to decline in value as rapidly as it has? I mean, is it purely just the flight to secure, you know, interests you know, interest-backed uh, notes or th- things like that? Is it the, the fear that equities falling has just caused a panic more generally? I mean, why exactly are these things happening in tandem? Well, I think there are a few factors you can point to. Um, I mean, things were on the decline for several months but before this. Most of the of the currencies, especially the big ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum, reached their all-time highs in November, I believe. Uh, there was also a big crash in May of last year, which I wrote an article about uh, for the Washington Post with my co-author Ben, but there was a big crash in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, last year, May nineteenth, I believe, and, and a bunch oh, of exchanges, yeah. including Binance, went down, which seems hmm. to happen when there are big price movements like this. So after May nineteenth last year, you started seeing a decline in uh, in trading volume among retail traders. Uh, so it seems that people are are losing interest. There, there are a few After theories. After Peter Thiel said Bitcoin was supposed to be as valuable as the entire stock market. Doesn't oh, yeah. He said all kinds make, of things. He's also he was called like it juicing a, it right at the end. Like, yeah, know. yeah. He's been all over the place, though. He also calls himself a Bitcoin maxi. But, you know, we saw retail volumes going down. I think some people are wising up. Some people have less disposable income or less. Maybe I think one thing that drives people to crypto is a sense of of financial desperation also because you know there were people during the recession who got their their uh, stimulus checks modest as they were and then probably put that in a coinbase account or something like that so i think there is a degree of people not having as much money to sort of risk or play around with but also some wising up then there are other more systemic factors the raising of interest rates this is something that uh, ben mckenzie my co-author has been talking to me and other people about a lot he really thought that would take some of the steam out of the markets, and it, it seems to be the the increasing interest rates, uh, trouble in China, uh, all the the trading being sort of pushed offshore. Though a lot of it was being done through VPNs anyway, so all that was causing months of sliding prices, and and generally things have been declining since November, and then this week you have a major stablecoin, a top ten cryptocurrency, basically going to zero. Um, exactly how that happened, the mechanism in which it happened is 
it can't actually be fully known at this point, I think, because some people believe they're sort of an outside attack, sort of like a, a George Soros type <laughs> right. attack on the Keep currency. Having people say, oh, Citadel or whatever. Is, yeah, yeah, there's that rumor going around that, but like Citadel and BlackRock are, it doesn't are make sense. they're like enemy yeah. number one for right. crypto. Right. And it's, right. it's one I mean, post it's, that's it's going It's very around. convenient for right. that to be the answer for why their prophecy yeah. failed. I right? mean, yeah. and the thing is, like, everyone thought this was probably going to fail at some point, Wait, but they but just thought that they could keep it spinning for long enough. Ken, Ken Griffin or, or whatever, is it Ken Griffin? Yeah, he's the guy. Yeah, he's the one who outbid the Dow that was trying to buy the Constitution, right? So I yeah, mean, they, by a, they've by been foiled by amount. him before, you know. So, yeah, so uh, you know, they, there is certainly a persecution complex or a sense that, and you know, if there's a lot of money to be made, I mean, there are hedge funds involved, there are high frequency trading firms that only do crypto. Um, you know, if there's money to be made on arbitraging between exchanges or trying to manipulate a, a protocol like like the whole Terra Luna anchor ecosystem, they'll go for it. I just, we just don't have evidence that they did. By one view of crypto, it's all in the game. Like, that's fine. You're operating on the protocol. You're following the rules. Like, if you find a way to, like, siphon off a lot of money. I mean, it's been funny. And I want to, this is tragic and amusing at the same time. I mean, you see some of these threads and they're like, you know, suicide hotlines getting posted. So I I, I don't want to dance on people who are, but but obviously there's sort of an intellectual part of it that it's very amusing. And in the, in the crypto world, you see like the hardcore Bitcoin people being like, you should have never believed in these stable coins. They're a centralized project that re- re- require all this sort of administration. So it's, it's funny to watch the infighting as this stuff like yeah. novels. Yeah. And I think there may be more of that. I mean, there's so much rationalization that goes on uh, within crypto in general on all sides. I mean, but especially during these times of trauma for some folks and these dramatic swings in the market. I mean, of course, in, in the normal stock market, if there were a 30% slide in a day or a week for the whole market, that would be, you know, that'd be historic or a huge problem. But in crypto, it's just, oh, we've seen it before. Or even, you know, you guys were referring, at the, I think, at the beginning of the conversation to 2017, 2018, there's the big ICO boom, then a crypto winter. Uh, you know, I'm more new to this, but at the same time, I at least know a little bit of that history. So I, I'm not ready to call crypto dead. Even if Tether collapse, crypto, I don't think will be dead. You know, you'll always have people who say we need to do it better this time, more decentralized, more offshore, or they'll, they'll have people to blame. But I don't think sort of an honest internal reckoning is, is, is going to happen. Well, it seems like two things need to be reconciled here. There's one in which like does the central thesis of cryptocurrency of a decentralized you know, financial system based on a public ledger, does that work as a technology? And, and then there's the like, you know, is it going to replace currency? Is it going to, you know, usher in a new economy? And and I, and I think like one can be true with the other being false. You know what I mean? Like, well, I guess, no, they both kind of, the the central technology has to work in order for the second to be true. But I'm more willing to believe someone who looks at the, you know, who's willing to look at the current state of a lot of these, cryptocurrencies and stable coins and, and whatever and say, yeah, obviously this is a horrible time. There have been a lot of failures that brought to this point, but the argument that we have as to why this works and is important still exists, still still is valid. Do you, do you agree with that? I don't, but I, I hear it and I, <laughs> I understand it. I mean, I think you're right, though, to, to sort of get back to first principles. Like, for example, I mean, I think financial censorship, as it's sometimes called, is an issue. I mean, but I don't, th- to be honest, I don't think people necessarily should be able to transact any amount 
freely with anyone without any sort of uh, right. political know your governance. customer has been sort of yeah, a central I, tenant of um, regulated so I think we, Yeah, we do need to find ways to preserve and even boost sort of privacy and financial freedom of a certain kind. Um, but I do think money needs to be subject to political governance. Now, that means something different here than it means in Nigeria or Lebanon or where they have uh, – real problems with the currencies and certainly the fed and wall street and goldman sachs basically running our monetary policy is not a good thing but i do think that currency in general if it is to act like currency and to have the protections that currency should have and so, and the consumer protections needs to be subject to some form of, of political governance and i don't mean a dow um that, that's my general philosophy. Uh, as for the technology, I'm glad to talk about that. I am certainly not an expert, but I will say this. It is more divisive within tech, I think, than almost any technology I've seen in a while, besides maybe like facial recognition or something like that. And I talked to a fair number of people who are computer scientists, technologists, um, someone like Nicholas Weaver is a very prominent on Twitter uh, voice on this. They just think the tech isn't very good that uh, an immutable blockchain with very uh, slow throughput or transaction pace is not the answer to uh, a digital money system. And I think in some ways the technology has been so fetishized that the industry is almost stuck with it. That I mean, there could be another way of making digital money without blockchain. Right. I mean, Bitcoin is certainly not a perfect system, but it's just sort of now like this almost historic artifact that we have. I mean, it's somewhat random that gold is our favorite metal. Like, sir, there's underlying value, but it's sort of like that's the one we've decided. And a lot of Bitcoin people aren't really arguing Bitcoin's some perfect thing. It's just like, oh, that's the one. That's the OG one. I mean, do you personally think Bitcoin is ever going to, like, go to zero? I mean, I mean, maybe it loses value when, like, if the U.S. says you can't have it. I find that unlikely. But to me, it's sort of like it's so far down the road that like some people will see it as a, cons- it's proven that it's some sort of store of value and people can own it. To Yeah. To, I mean, you know. it's an interesting question. I, I don't think it'll, I probably don't think it'll go to zero. I mean, we've seen a couple of things go to zero practically this week, but you know, Bitcoin has been around for a while since, uh, what is it? October, 2008 or 2009. I always forget if it's 08 or nine, but, um, so it has, it has a certain amount of longevity in terms of in tech terms. I think crypto in general and and sort of the the cryptocurrencies that have followed and the other blockchains that have followed have have almost been um, I don't know they've had their time in a way. I think like we haven't we've had twelve plus years of this stuff and there isn't really sort of a functioning crypto economy without these glaring security holes and wild volatility and really difficulty transacting widely in those currencies. I do think Bitcoin, especially because it's first and and seen as rather innovative and seen as more decentralized, though there are certainly people working on the Bitcoin protocol, but I think Bitcoin would have more staying power. I also think Bitcoin, I mean, one, this isn't a monolithic industry. I've, I've learned that in the last year. There are people who, who dabble. There are people who believe all kinds of things. But Bitcoin does have sort of the strongest or most, uh, yeah, per, perhaps the strongest culture, which in some forms is a cult, I think, or an ideology. I mean, I, I don't think that's everyone who, who likes Bitcoin or invests in Bitcoin. But, you know, that core of true believers is strong. And I think that might help you know, sustain it in, in some form for a while. Right. Well, I, I mean, a lot of them would admit the cult 
piece. Yeah, it. I talk to people. They say they they're willing to admit that sometimes. Yeah. Well, that I mean that becomes very literal with the NFT crowd as well. I mean it's it's not a, it's not a very far jump to see the groups built around worshiping of you know digital artifacts uh, into something that has like a religious fervor behind it. But I mean, there's a general broader truth that things are give are valuable because humans attach value to them more than because they produce cash flow at least mm-hmm. of in the recent economy now yeah. maybe we are about to see the day where we revert to ability to produce cash flow is the main thing that drives the value of things but we exited that period for a long time and so if you observe that and realize that people were making a killing on Tesla because it was going up why not abstract it a level further and just say we can yeah make money on monkeys or whatever we can all, <laughs> we, where we have influence and we can convince people that their value, I mean, to some degree, they're being, they were being more honest about the economy we were living in than people who were sort of saying it wasn't going to work because it should, the world should work on cash flows, but it, you know, it wasn't. Yeah. I think it's interesting because, you know, we had maybe 20 years plus where we're of this new digital economy. I mean, not, not to reduce it, too much or oversimplify, but where um, there was digital abundance, you know, uh, potentially infinite abundance because any file can be replicated with perfect fidelity easily. And then you had things like DRM and other sort of systems to try to to deal with this, uh, with piracy and infinite abundance and all that. And now this is, in some ways, what's happening with NFTs and digital assets and stuff like that and blockchain-based assets is is almost a new form of DRM or perhaps a new way of trying to more thoroughly apply uh, meet space property rights, you might call them, in the digital world, which in turn leads to the ability to to produce cash flows, rents, royalties on digital assets. So you can kind of, uh, at least from that's how I kind of see it. Um, whether that's possible or, or can be successful is another question. But I see the, the sort of... Uh, the model or the economic angle being run here, or at least that's how it appears to me. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing about NFTs, we laugh at, they're the easiest to laugh at, but I also think they were the clearest where people actually said, Oh, maybe this is an actual utility of blockchain. Right. I mean, I do, even though I'm probably most willing to defend all of this, like, yeah, the, the, the clear use case of, blockchain in any sort of besides financial speculation is remains like a total mystery. And at least NFTs were like, okay, yeah, you could, I mean, I can see why you might want to own objects and games and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, that market is collapsing I think it's also telling that if you were to explain this entire world to someone, the one, like a regular person, the one that I think would have the most purchase with them that they would understand would probably be NFTs, you know, just digital rights ownership over digital goods or rights ownership over digital goods. That makes sense to people to a certain degree. Whereas, you know, the full critique of the capital system that, you know, crypto is supposed to be representative of, it gets, like you say, so abstracted that, you know, the value is truly going to be in the people who want to take the time to understand this and convince other people of it. And I think also that's why, you know, if people are interested in this stuff, I, I see crypto in general a, a lot like gambling, and I have no problem with gambling. I do it occasionally. But, you know, the general rule is gamble only as much as you can afford to lose, and people should know the risks. And I don't think people know the risks very well in crypto. But I also think that what you're talking about 
with that um, explanatory. And, and so the gambling side is one reason why I see crypto maybe as staying or at least um, becoming somewhat niche in the future. Um, the other or or not receiving mass adoption. The other part is, is sort of the, the explanatory factor that, that you were just getting at, Tom, which is that it's hard to explain this stuff to people. I mean, certainly, you know, the elderly people in my family, it's kind of hopeless, um, even if they have their faculties, which they do. But, you know, it's just, it's hard to explain. It's taken me a long time to understand how some of this stuff works, and I'm still learning more. And that's the difference between something like um, Uber and Facebook, which, I mean, I've criticized those companies plenty, but the service they provide is is, is clear. It passes sort of the grandma test as I've heard it called back in uh, from startups years ago, like you can say in a sentence or two what this thing does. But what I think might what crypto might need if it survives the, the various hurdles that it's facing is um, actually sort of speaking of abstraction is maybe like another layer above it um, of 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 an interface that so people don't know that they're that they're working with the blockchain. They don't really know that they're working with crypto. For example, on uh, you know there are all these issues on OpenSea and these other NFT platforms where people are sent uh, NFTs that they don't want, or they click they 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 click the wrong link and then it's over uh, because you can't really re- reverse any decisions. Right. You know, there are permissions that are involved and things like that. If if the everyday user didn't have to deal with sort of that technical complexity and um, on a day to day level, I think that would actually solve a lot of the, the the onboarding issues and also the security issues too. I mean, but that. That's sort of like a reason to have optimism to me for this whole world, right? I mean, to like, yeah, like Facebook, Twitter, users don't need to understand machine learning to know that the services serve up people that they want to see or, you know, especially TikTok now. And and yeah, so I totally agree with you that a lot of the technical stuff needs to be abstracted for it to work. But that's that's why it's like, it's very believable to me that right now in crypto, we're in the dot-com era, you know, like Mm -hmm. most of it's totally useless. It's all going to blow up, but like still like Amazon emerges from the dot-com era. Like the the key, like I I just find it hard to believe that everyone is so attached to these various ideas that like nothing good comes out of it. And that like in a hundred years, we don't say, wow, like that, that, that people don't really care that there were all these like frauds. hundred years. That, Jesus I mean, Christ. That's a I long mean, timeline to prove out something. Sure, sure. Wasn't not a like 120 years. I, I think yeah. crypto will be, but well, it, I mean. Yeah, yeah. This like leads to like my next question then for both of you guys. I, I don't have an answer to it at all, but like, where do you see the current state of the broader legitimate tech industry when it comes to continuing its fascination with this space? Right. I mean, like, we all know tons of people that had really great jobs at tech companies that bailed to go work at OpenSea or Coinbase or any of these other companies that are predicated entirely on the furtherance and existence of this technology. So many VCs that we know have shifted their focus entirely to backing crypto startups. That's their that's their MO. Like what happens to that now? There's a huge amount of money still like leaning on the fact that this will persist. Are they going to back off it? Like, where 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 are their heads at right now? I'm, I'm sure there's been stories written about it, but what are you what are you gathering? I'm not. Well, Eric could probably speak more towards um, you know where where people's heads are at, perhaps. But I mean, I think part of it also depends on how big the the next crash is, whether it's the ongoing slide that 
or pseudo crash that we have going now? Like, does that keep going? I mean, that notice about bankruptcy that Coinbase put up, I mean, they say, uh, yeah, they just had to do it to fulfill some legal requirement. But is that a sign of things to come? I you think know, they're pretty well capitalized. I would be shocked. I would be surprised if, too. If but, Coinbase, but I, I think don't there's think a, they have a... Yeah, I think there's a question of how much of this stuff sort of crumbles and do major companies fail? It, it's certainly possible in the, in the next couple of years. It is interesting because as, as you, you've both gone out there, there is so much money coming in. I mean, I think uh, Andreessen Horowitz is ready to pour more billions into into crypto startups. And you have a proliferating number of firms and besides the already established ones or Paradigm and these others and Katie Hahn leaving A16Z to do her own thing. Like there doesn't seem to be any lack of capital. One question might be, uh, does rising interest rates cut off some of that capital or at least, you know, some of the institutional investors get a little more skittish and want to put their money in something that seems safer? Uh, so I'm of two minds almost like I think there's been a lot of money put into this stuff. I frankly don't see as much use case, but there is a, a sense in which parts of the tech industry and certainly the VC industry are almost like pot committed to use a poker analogy like you know, they put a lot of resources into this. Some of them have probably done pretty well by selling tokens or whatever. But, you know, I'm sure lots of people would like to see something sustainable come out of this. Right. Yeah, I agree that there's a lot of money out there. I think, you know, a lot of the firms that were sort of dipping their toes in crypto are certainly going to get even more skittish about it. And I think, you know, the crypto funds will slow down the deployment. So it'll certainly hurt sort of the companies that are even more peripheral. But yeah, it doesn't seem like money's going to dry up overnight. But that was sort of true of the dot-com and 2008 crashes where it's like, it's not like the money disappears right away because just like the nature of startup investments, you know, there's still, there's still like these funds that have been raised that deploys, but yeah, the valuations fall. Talent is an interesting question there too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they've been these huge talent magnets at the major companies, all of these, all of these crypto companies. And I don't want to be too far down like the Valley mindset of saying like, you know, talent is enough to create a product and a, and a, and a positive result. Like I think good ideas are probably more important uh, ultimately than that, but it will be interesting to see if there is like a rush back to traditional tech companies by a lot of these people that saw it as like a new frontier and now are disillusioned by the state of affairs. And, you know, that could have cascading impacts on uh, the industry. Jacob, this is sort of a different direction, but I just want to make, what is your sort of moral project on it? Or like, are you, you, you want people to be aware that this is like gambling or like, but, but are you sort of, do you have a personal stance on like, I, I want government to ban X, Y, Z, or, I mean, wh where do you sort of see your like, I don't know, the, this sort of ideological, political sort of part of this intersecting with what's happening and therefore you having some sort of perspective on sure. what should happen. Yeah, the, the usage of Ponzi scheme is like a pretty loaded moral term. Like those are illegal. Well, I, they are. At the same time, you, you see it being used sometimes by people within the industry. I mean, I would say this, like, you know, I don't necessarily think people should be banned. <laughs> I mean, from scheme is typically like not a word associated with positivity, even if you're defensive. It's, but the crypto it's a Ponzi opportunity. Use Ponzi. It's easy to <laughs> yeah. throw it around anyway. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I do think that, you know, I'm trying to talk to as many people as I can from all facets of the industry and, and also just everyday folks who trade and, and stuff like that. So I, I've managed to talk to some folks who are true believers, who are executives at crypto companies, people like that, and then a lot of skeptics like me or, or outright critics. 
a few things that I think could help. I, I would, I, I prefer to see more sort of guardrails introduced to the system rather than um, it being just you know smashed at, smashed wholesale necessarily. But I think that most cryptocurrencies should be and most tokens should be treated as securities. Uh, I'm not an expert in securities law, but from what I understand, they seem to pass the Howey test which is sort of the, the standard for whether these should be treated as securities. I mean, the SEC has done a little bit of this uh, in some of their enforcement. You have, you have the other issue with uh, Bitcoin being officially classified as a commodity, I believe, through the CFTC. But in general, I, I think these are, are securities. And I think the SEC has a lot of authority to, to do some things now that would make for a safer retail environment for consumers. So I do try to approach this mostly from a consumer protection standpoint, I think. I mean, I'd, I, I'm, I'm a person of the left. I think that's so when when my sort of lefty politics come in, I would say it's when I hear people from crypto companies saying we are promoting financial inclusion or we're, de- or we're democratizing <laughs> yeah. the economy or, you know, those sort of the fact the idea that crypto is somehow emancipatory or liberatory. I think financial freedom is a real thing. But I think like for me, I would have. And I don't claim to speak for everyone, but I would have my f- more financial freedom if I had universal health care, you know, if I had if I perhaps had postal access to postal banking or, or, or a local credit union or something like that. Like the things that would if I had state subsidized child care like that would offer me a lot more financial freedom than the opportunity to speculate on wildly volatile cryptocurrencies. Um, I mean- so I think about it in some ways like that, like what should the government what should the government's role be in sort of providing for people's economic opportunity and freedom? And I don't think that cryptocurrencies necessarily enhance that project. The the SEC and the federal government's sort of regulation of crypto, I find it extremely disillusioning to like the liberal democratic uh, project. To they've, me, it is, they've done a poor job of it. That's for it, sure. It is yeah. similar to the SEC's failure to uh, hold Elon Musk accountable to any of its own rules, or just sort of like you know the fact that California and New York are like democratic-controlled states and fail to like adhere to like sort of the liberal utopian like vision that they would promote. So, so to me, I don't know. All this stuff makes me, you know, as sort of a diehard Democrat, somewhat disillusioned with the left, given that they, it's like, you have to act in a, like technology moves quickly. Like, I feel like I, on the one hand, appreciate that, like, I I don't have full conclusions about crypto. So I wouldn't, if I were in charge, just be banning things left and right. But, but not taking action is, is a policy decision. You're basically like letting it happen and sort of yielding sort of any sense of control over over what happens. So I, I just feel like the slowness has been an embarrassment for the democratic idea of governance. But, but you've also seen the ability of regulatory bodies to, when they make strong moves, to have huge effect. I mean, I think about what they did with SPACs in, in the last couple of months, like by raising the requirements and stopping companies from making Un, you know, unchecked. But they basically projection. let all the spacs get out first. Yeah, they, no, it was definitely we, too late. Why? There, there's why no question that, that like way? the it's window. Like, oh yeah, there's this big appetite for speculative companies to get out. We're gonna let them all basically get out, and then right, we're gonna say you know like no more. Like it was obvious from the beginning that the projections issue. You should have like on the first day they could have said, oh, you can't just like give wild projections because you're doing this weird loophole trick. Like it was self evident. I don't know why. That I, you know, I reported on it for a couple of days, and I like wrote that. I don't know what 
why it takes like months and you. Yeah, like, there's no points like, for timing the, here. Right. I, my point was just that like, and uh, when sure, they do they make decisions, they can do yeah. it. They, they but, have the ability. But, like, but to like me, the, the, I... Yeah, they shut the down the Telegram ICO, and that was, that was a big one. Yeah, right. I I hear different things. I mean, I, I have a lot of frustrations, and yeah, this is. I mean, certainly a bipartisan problem. I mean, and also when I raise this stuff, people in crypto are like, "Well, what about Nancy Pelosi profiting off of insider trading?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> like, I'm disgusted by that." That's sort of an argument. That's an, we get off on a lot of tangents about like, well, Wall Street does X, Y, Z. Yeah, Wall Street right. does a lot of horrible things. I don't think crypto is necessarily the response to those. But as for the SEC, I think you know there's the problem of a lack of political will. They don't want to be seen as popping the bubble. They don't want to be seen as anti-innovation. Some of these cases may take a while, but there also is just a question of why. Why is it more being done? Gary Gensler talks a big game at times. Uh, I've and he's like an expert in crypto. Yeah, he taught a course at MIT on blockchain. He knows this stuff. I mean, yeah, he's a Goldman guy, so you have to keep one eye open uh, for that. But, um, you know, I've talked to people in in sort of, I guess you'd say, state law enforcement or state regulatory bodies who are baffled that more isn't being done on the federal level. Um, they've Some of them have sent information to the SEC, you know, huge files with the essential parts marked. And still you don't have, I mean, the SEC doesn't do criminal prosecutions, but some of the stuff is going to the DOJ also. And like, you know, the summer of 2021, there was an article in Bloomberg saying tether under federal investigation for bank, for criminal bank fraud, which is, which if you read the reports from the New York AG and the CFTC into tether, they probably committed bank fraud. Um, so there's a lot of questions, I think, you know, it goes back to some of those things I just said, but it is a failure of sort of the administrative and regulatory state right. and the judicial process that we don't prosecute any form of white collar crime that Elon, we've all seen that Elon Musk broke securities laws this year when he was, uh, um, accumulating his, his Twitter stake. So it, it's deeply frustrating from sort of top to bottom. Right. And I, I don't want to come off like I'm saying, I want to freeze everything. I just think on very straightforward stuff, I mean, the SPAC sort of projections issue is so easy to say, but you know, on crypto world, you could just require like disclosures for yes, the stable I, coin holdings. Like it's not like you have to ban things. You can just say, oh, we're going to create reporting requirements, you know, if you're claiming X, Y, Z. And I think disclosure is huge. This is actually another thing my, my co-author Ben McKenzie talks about is like, you know, it's a basic fact usually of doing business uh, and especially investing in, in companies and in stocks. You, you know who you're doing business with. There's a person on the, and company uh, and a legal entity on the other end. I mean, uh, we don't even have to get into the debate about, quote unquote, doxing the, the board eight people. But I do think it is ridiculous that, like, this was a multi-billion dollar company in the making and they thought that they could be anonymous. Like, if we just had more, if that would be a great start is to have more disclosure, knowing who's behind some of these companies. So people also can't rug pull and then pop up again under another pseudonym. Rug pull, exactly. I mean, I, I was going to bring that term up. I mean, just the idea that it's sort of like par for the course in crypto world that basically, you know, somebody will announce a project, raise a bunch of money and then just disappear with the money. That's a rug pull. And, and they'll it's probably like come expected. back later. Yeah, people it's are just expected. like, oh, this guy did a couple rug pulls already, you know. But this time, it's a good project, you know. And because you hear I already that. sunk, Th right? That's the rationalization <laughs> factor I talked about earlier, which is that people make excuses. There's such low expectations that they're like, he apologized, or he did produce some value for a lot of people. Let's see what he's got next, or the person just disappears and comes up uh, under another pseudonym. 
But, um, you know, when I go to conferences and things like that, and I, and, and Ben and I interview people, nearly everyone we've talked to has been scammed. And a lot of them have rationalizations. Usually it comes down to, oh, it was my fault. I didn't, I clicked the wrong thing. I didn't do enough research. I didn't realize that this risk X, Y, Z, but it, it maybe because it's somewhat of a libertarian, unregulated culture, that sense of responsibility comes back onto the individual. And I think that's also very unfortunate and not a way to build a sustainable industry. You need not just these guardrails, but a sense of accountability within the industry that there, that people shouldn't be scammed left and right all the time. That shouldn't be just sort of the cost of doing business or the cost of entry. It's such a bizarre world. I just realized the more you talk that you, you have both the people who are so openly cynical about things that they're happily willing to accept a rug pull or, or, or a scam or somebody, you know, a pump and dump is like not even considered a criticism. They're like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a pump and dump. It's one of the pump and dump coins. <laughs> yeah. We had Dogecoin and then we had a billion iterations of Doge. It's like, oh, what a great pump and dump idea. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, man, it's still one of the saddest things. I, so I write about the gig economy and one of the saddest things that I came across was a, a driver for actually GoPuff who was telling me that she had done the research and was investing in not Shiba Inu, but a Shiba Inu knockoff. And she was like, I've done the research and, you know, I went to a conference in Vegas and I feel really good about this. And I mean, I'm assuming that's all gone to zero at this point. And she had sounded like yeah, she had put the thousands I, in that. I mean, there are people who manage to sort of ride the volatility or, you know, a coin might be worth period seven zeros and then a number. They're these basically worthless coins, but sometimes people buy a, a million of them and then and then ride a ten percent increase, and suddenly they've made some money. Right. But yeah, generally in those kinds of cases, you're not going to make a profit. Part of the reason is like there's not much to differentiate a lot of these coins. Yeah, there are different prices, and and some of these projects are are better funded than others. But uh, a lot of the utility, I think, is also outside of DeFi at least is like is sort of promised for down the road. Like this is going to get you into certain events or contacts with these people, or you can get a letter from this celebrity or whatever else. But on a fundamental level, a lot of it is number go up. It's speculation that's built on hype and froth and perhaps disinformation and celebrity endorsements and all those kinds of things. That's not universal across the board, but I mean, certainly at least 95% of coins probably fall under that. So you're working with on a book with Ben, right? Yeah, we're we're frankly we're hoping to have some other multimedia projects in the future, but the book is definitely happening. <laughs> Does it focus on particular characters or even independent of the book? I'm just curious, like who you think is who are the people in sort of crypto world interests you the most? Yeah, uh, uh, we definitely have sort of heroes, villains, and victims. Um, it, it it is somewhat character driven and narrative driven. You know, we want to tell interesting stories and good stories, and not just browbeat people that crypto is bad or something like that. Um, so uh, I, I guess I'm reluctant. I'm sorry to, to sure, say I don't exactly because sw- yeah, right. some of the stuff might change also. Yeah. I will say this. There was a great article in The Verge a month or two ago about Justin Sun, uh, who is the head of Tron, a big blockchain that does a lot hmm. of business with Tether. Justin Sun, I'm not writing about Justin Sun at the moment. I might one day. But Justin Sun, famously last year, he... I believe he was a Chinese national. He, he sort of one of these people who sort of uh, 
takes different citizenships. And he moved to Grenada, took the island of Grenada, the one that Reagan invaded, and took Grenadan citizenship and became their ambassador to the World Trade Organization. Oh, my God. I mean, totally bizarre, but, of course, it's crypto. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is that he wants diplomatic protection. Uh, whether that really <laughs> matters, you know, whether Grena- Grenada can stand up to China or the U.S. is is probably unlikely. But... There's a great article in the in the Verge. Uh, I forget the author's name, but we'll include a link. It's called like the many es- the many escapes of Justin's son. This is from not that long ago, and I really think that Justin's son is a representative figure in crypto. And when I talk about the industry as sort of having fraudulent or perhaps even criminal underpinnings, I don't mean that everyone, but I think there are some major figures in crypto who resemble who are like Justin's son, and they have a lot of control over the industry. I mean, people at Tether. People perhaps at Binance, some of these big corporations and entities that are based in the Seychelles and in Malta and in the Caribbean, often through a number of shell companies and whose operators have shady backgrounds. I mean, you can even look at the CEO of Crypto.com. There's a Daily Beast article about the CEO of Crypto.com. He basically rug pulled on his last company in Southeast Asia, which uh, wasn't a crypto company, but... You know, you can see the history of some of these people. Like, there's a reason why this industry attracts scammers and sometimes at a high level. Well, this is why and, the tech press sort of throws its hands up on this stuff. It's sort of like, I mean, this, what do you do when it's so self-evident that there's yeah. scammy behavior? You're like, what, what am I even going to report? I mean, it's sort of like the same, like, Donald Trump political reporter problem in some ways. It's like, yeah, like, obviously it's bad. Like, I don't, I, I don't know. I, kudos to you for finding angles into it. But sometimes I'm just like, what's, you know. Well, that's why the victim's <laughs> angle probably has to be the clearest one here, right? Because yeah. if a lot of it is just playing out in the media or on social media and, you know, you have these ridiculous characters who are like, look at me, what I'm doing is a rug pull. Um, then the only real way to prove impact is by showing like, well, this is who was wrapped up in this person's quest for fame and, you know, short-term fortune. I'd also say that, you know, there's some basic things I think that people don't really realize. And this goes back to what we want to do with our book. I'd love for the book to appeal to crypto people, including hardcore crypto people. But, you know, 80 plus percent of the American population has never bought crypto. So in a way, it's, it's supposed to be a story, an entertaining one about crypto fraud, financial chicanery, these kinds of things that can appeal to the non-crypto person and, and maybe also make them feel a little bit better about missing out. But they're, you know, they're basic things I think people don't know that like, for example, 80 to 90% of trading on most platforms and most exchanges is wash trading. It's fake. So, you know, there's an idea of of a free market. That's and like then people like buying and selling their own NFTs to yeah. create the illusion that they're valuable or you own... And right. you drive up the prices right. and you create the illusion of volume, which has a similar effect. And it's there are like the bots of social media are, yeah, are wash trading. It's, with it's very similar that, I mean, they all intersect too. On the stock market, you cannot like make trades for the intent of making it seem like there's a lot of buying interest when it's just you trying. That's stock market. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it's illegal on the stock <laughs> right. market. And, right. Sounds, and it's, it sounds like it's, just, it's not like do. an unfamiliar type of thing. That's why it's like, okay, yeah, you could regulate that. Sort yeah. Of. And I wish people could understand also, you can have sort of a quote unquote free market, but right now you have a market that's free to be manipulated and it's almost undoubtedly manipulated all of the exchanges pretty much. Uh, maybe some of like the US based ones, like Perhaps Coinbase is better because it is it, it tries to be in compliance with the law. It's publicly traded. It's based here in the U.S. But you know these overseas exchanges. There are plenty of academic studies on them. 
you know, read up on, on, on Binance or read my article in the Washington Post on Binance, it's very hard to trust that these are actually quote unquote free markets in the sense of kind of operating unfettered. Right. They're more free for people to manipulate them. And also I think that they're free to be playgrounds for high frequency trading firms, which are just cleaning up uh, supposedly on some of these exchanges because they are work much faster and have much better information than sort of the average day trader. It's funny, the term that always gets thrown around in tech in a, in a burgeoning industry is, oh, it's the Wild West right now. You know, that any anytime a new platform comes up and a number of startups go after it, you say, oh, it's the Wild West, which typically just means like five or six VC-backed companies are all having like, you know, territory carve-outs to see who can, you know, emerge the number one. But like the actual analogy of the Wild West, which is that it, there's no governance and people are getting shot like people are getting killed without any sort of repercussions feels a lot more realistic to explaining what's happened in crypto. And also the people that made a lot of money during the wild west, there weren't that many like self-made entrepreneurs who came out of nowhere to, you know, ended up becoming whatever saloon owners. Like there was a lot of Eastern capital that ended up funding these things. And those were the people that made out on it all. So it's finally like the analogy rings true and it's, and it's horrifying. Well, also another way in which it might be like the wild west is that, uh, in 19th century, you had private money, uh, in various forms. You had sort of corporations, uh, especially railroads, I think, introducing sure, their own script. money in, in sort of in regions in the West and stuff like that. So there are ways in which crypto is a, is a return to that, both the, the sort of anarchic and, and lawless quality of it. And also, these are basically corporations. I mean, sometimes they're one or two people, but issuing their own currencies and uh, with all the complications that that then introduces. In closing here, it's like, I feel like the burden at this point can be on you know, the DeFi community or the crypto community to like prove that this can work within the regulatory system. Like it doesn't have to exist directly in contrast to it and say any sort of regulation would doom it. I don't think it's a very good system if that's the, if that's the case, right? Like find a way for this technology to further all of the goals that you have, but also do it under, you know, the confines of a, a normative regulatory state. And if it, it probably can do that. I mean, it, it's, a, it's maybe more challenging for them, but there's no question to me that it'll be more successful and more beneficial if that happens. Yeah, I think you'll see fewer sort of uh, social effects. I mean, right now, crypto often strikes me as a, as a zero-sum or even negative-sum game with, uh, because it's sort of socially corrosive and the environmental effects. But look, if we can bring this into a, a more uh, law-abiding and regulated system where there are actually protections for consumers, which I think is pretty key, because most crypto buyers are now in the red, um, especially most Bitcoin buyers, uh, I think that would be a, a lot better for everyone. I do think, a, including creating more sustainable businesses. I mean, p- some people in crypto won't want that because then you you miss out on some of the volatility and the crazy highs and lows, which is how some folks make their money. And it may be far less exciting and you may not be able to go 10,000x in, in a year or whatever. But I think that's how you keep this stuff alive and bring it into the mainstream. Are we going to see like a series of movies now? I just realized, you know, we, like we've gone through the cycle of tech TV shows um, based on like the last 10 years of, of, you know, Silicon Valley, we're probably due in, like a year or two from now from like a series of TV shows about all these characters, right? I'm sorry to say that I hope to write one, but who knows what will happen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think people just need to, like the characters aren't as famous, but I mean, I think that can happen. That's what I was it sort takes of time. wondering. Oh, I, mean, yeah, I always sure, think biology sure. is interesting. I mean, there's sort of the true, true believers and then there are the sort of, money guys and yeah i mean there are a lot of characters but it's still yeah. it's still evolving all all the tech shows were about scamming this 
crypto. I mean, getting scammed is such a big part of human nature. I, I don't know if I have a lot of optimism that it's like, okay, we stop people from getting scammed in Bitcoin. They just like, they race to another thing. I mean, that's true. You can protect them, obviously, because, because it's just like people do the terrible thing that's in front of them. And if it's not in front of them, they don't get scammed. I mean, I don't even trade individual stocks and I cover the technology industry. Just like the hubris to me, you know, that you like, I don't know, some random person thinks they're going to be an expert on like Dogecoin or whatever. It's like, what do you, you there are people far closer to it than you. I, it, it, I, I, I'm so disconnected from the worldview of the person. Like they know on some level, they're not in touch with like power and like, who's actually like doing these things. And yet they feel confident enough to like ride this like crazy wave that they couldn't yeah. understand. Like, I, I I don't know. It's just like, there's no humility in it to me. I don't, I don't know. Do you own any crypto? Have you, like, I, you, I, I you're admit deep I, in it. I don't right now. Right. Um, I haven't. Uh, you know, it's funny. Like, people in crypto say, like, well, how can you understand this stuff if you don't own it or trade it? And then, you know, in journalism, usually the attitude is you don't really want to own something or be financially invested in what you cover. So that's my main reason is I just don't want to be rooting for something. or But... I, I have been thinking about putting in sort of a small amount into a portfolio because I just I do need a little you know firsthand experience with some of this stuff and hopefully I won't uh, have it. Maybe next time you have me on the show, I'll have had a total change of heart and now I'll be like, you need to invest in this coin, <laughs> right? Exactly, <laughs> in Jacob coin. You've just been you've just been too poor for too for too long. You didn't yeah, understand that's right. the rush. Well, the funny thing is that the one uh, host on this show who has the most uh, uh, of her net worth tied up in crypto wasn't able to make it today. But uh, <laughs> well, Katie Katie's bought still it like a hundred, right? and yeah. So now she has she bought a Bitcoin, and you know it's not worth like whatever a Bitcoin's worth. But well, yeah, only twenty nine thousand. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, yeah, I should, we should. Well, and but there's no true neutrality, right? There's no neutrality on like yeah. what's okay to hold, like. There's no objective right number on like the percentage of your portfolio that should be in crypto, right? Like, so therefore you can't construct what a like journalistic neutral thing is because saying it's zero is an opinion or saying it's 2% is an opinion. I don't know. So I feel like inevitably you're trapped in having to make some sort of judgment about what a yeah. neutral portfolio would be. Yeah, I'm not sure. And, and I would try to focus on things I, I don't, I probably wouldn't write about. Uh, I wouldn't really talk about it very much, I think. Also, I have, uh, uh, perhaps I'm fortunate in that I don't have a lot of uh, spare money lying around to play with. So yeah. there's that well, too. Yeah. All right, Jacob, thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for coming on. This was great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.